I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. What's up, Seth? How's it going? It's going well. How are you, Jonathan? Good. I'm a... On my own this weekend, Abby is visiting her parents. I'm on call at the college, so I'm here. And Winnie and I are tearing up the house, throwing just the absolute ragers of parties. I believe that Winnie is. Yeah, it's hard to keep her contained. <laughs> but be- before we get into Winnie's shenanigans, I have a very important question for you. What would you do in this particular situation... Would you want to have one body with multiple heads, each with a mind of its own, or have your one head attached to multiple bodies, each with a mind of its own? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So if I have one head attached to multiple bodies, but they each have a mind of their own, it's like my head is like a clone all the bodies are different it's like you'd have multiple necks all attaching to your to my head. one head it's like like spokes coming out of my and head. i feel exactly but i feel like every time you wanted to use the bodies you'd be like you'd be kind of in an argument you'd be the only only <laughs> mind that could vocalize your argument but whereas if you had one body with multiple heads you'd all have control over the body and you might have to argue out loud about it. <laughs> okay, I think I'd rather not argue out loud. Just argue mm, okay. silently. Some that I'm going to go with that option. The the spoked head. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I'd disagree with you. I think I'd have rather have multiple heads. Cuz I feel like that would be more entertaining. Like you could form a one-bodied improv troupe or like vocal ensemble (laughs) that's just my thought okay okay so in my choice the head is like the all the spokes come off the head but in your choice all the bodies come off of there's just there's just one body but in your choice the heads all the different heads come off one body yeah it's like the the okay. large character in uh, Monty Python in the quest for the Holy Grail. That's what I'm thinking okay, of right okay. now. I'm sticking with mine, though. Fine. Okay. I'm interested to see how this relates. We'll see if it actually does. Oh, but why don't you go I, ahead and read Jesus' prayer from the Gospel of John? This is John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to those you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, 
and now they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've entrusted to me does indeed come from you. I entrusted to them the message you entrusted to me, and they received it. They know that I really came from you. They believe it was you who sent me. And it is for them that I pray, not for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are really yours, just as all that belongs to me is yours, and all that belongs to you is mine. It is in them that I have been glorified. I am in the world no more, but while I am coming to you, they are still in the world. Abba, holy God, protect those whom you have given me with your name, the name that you gave me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As long as I was with them, I guarded them with your name, which you gave me. I kept careful watch, and not one of them was lost, except for the one who was destined to be lost in fulfillment of scripture. Now I'm coming to you, I say all this while I am still in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I gave them your word, and the world has hated them for it, because they don't belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to guard them from the evil one. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Consecrate them. Make them holy through the truth, as your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I consecrate myself now for their sakes, that they may be made holy in truth. That was great. But tell us a little bit about the translation. Sure. So we've used this translation uh, a few times before. This is the Inclusive Bible. And this is one of the translations that I like to look at when I'm considering more poetic portions of Scripture, simply because it frames the passages kind of kind of uh, in a similar way you said in our last episode, Seth, about how the ELCA... Uh, frames the Psalms in an inclusive way. The inclusive Bible does something really similar. And even though this passage comes towards the end of John's gospel, it is a poetic passage. It's a theological passage. It's a prayer. It's Jesus's prayer for the disciples. I just wanted to take the opportunity to hear these words in a more worshipful or worship-oriented perspective. So that's why we went with the inclusive Bible this time. But I'm curious to know, as you read through that, at least this portion of the prayer that we read, what stood out to you as particularly important or just striking about what Jesus prayed? Okay, this is kind of a strange prayer. Like, I don't know if but, this is how <laughs> I, I usually pray. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like there's... This is like those prayers where it's like borderline prayer and teaching. Like the prayer, like the person's right. in the middle of prayer and you're also getting like a, like a theological lesson. And... Right. Well, and it's worth, it's worth asking the question like we always do. How much of this is, you know, documenting what Jesus prayed? How much of this is the author of John using Jesus and Jesus praying as kind of a mouthpiece for some teachings that the Johannine community 
needed to hear in those moments. But still, you're you're spot on. Like this prayer just feels kind of like Jesus recounting like a theological discourse of some kind or making like an argument about (laughs) who Jesus actually is. And it doesn't feel there. There are only a few moments that actually feel like a prayer. And most of the time it just feels like Jesus describing the situation (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) Exactly. With that, what does stick out to me are the sections where it seems like Jesus is like actually praying, like asking for Mm. something. Yeah. Like when, when he prays, Abba, Protect those whom you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Yeah. Those those moments throughout this prayer, and it continues with some similar sentiments kind of after where the prayer ended. Those are powerful. And I, as I was preparing this, I actually made an assumption about, oh, well, Jesus is, Jesus is praying. It's getting towards the end of the gospel. This must be Jesus's prayer in the garden. You know, we hear, we hear about this. That's not what's happening here. This is immediately following a lot of the stuff that's talked about as kind of the Last Supper, the last, mm-hmm. like, theoretically, Jesus is still around the table with his disciples. I think Judas may have left by this point, which is why we have that one kind of parenthetical yeah. about, like, it's, uh, I kept, I kept careful watch, and not one of them was lost. Well, except for the one who was supposed to be lost to fulfill scripture, <laughs> which I thought, <laughs> I just thought, like, tragic, of course, in the actuality of these events, but, like, kind of a hilarious jab at Judas in the middle of this really high theological prayer. <laughs> but think about that. Like, can you imagine if, if your dinner host started doing this while you were still sitting at the table or like sipping coffee or tea with dessert at the end of the meal. And you're just like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) And it's that context of the last supper, especially if Jesus has, has left that makes Jesus call to oneness. So interesting to me. Like I, I just think of meals, like always kind of an, kind of creating that oneness and right. creating some sort of community and then Jesus that's a, seems to be what Jesus is praying for here at least in in the parts where he's he's doing the prayer petitions right right yeah there's just that one mention where there's like this explicit prayer for unity prayer for oneness among the believers and like we were hinting at earlier there's some more of that coming later where Jesus also prays for the people who believe in him because of the disciples, that they may also be one. And we could talk about that being, again, a direct reference to the community that was receiving this gospel originally. I think it's also fair for us to kind of see ourselves swept up in that moment too. But there's also something so implicit throughout this, not just in what Jesus explicitly says, but there's so much unity implied throughout this prayer and i'm curious to know how striking the parallelism was for you i know this isn't a psalm but there was so much like this is this just like this is this or this is this unlike how this is this so what kind of things does that parallelism do you think communicate in this prayer so let me give you an example of what i'm talking about in verse eight 
Jesus says, I entrusted to them the message you entrusted to me, and they received it. They know that I really came from you. They believe it was you who sent me. So there's these moments of God has given something to Jesus. Jesus gives that to the disciples. There's this direct connecting point. And at the same time, Jesus makes these parallels between Jesus in his own person and God. And so it seems like there's something, again, being implied, kind of being underwritten into this prayer that is drawing the community of believers not only closer to one another, but saying something different about their relationship with God. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, it does. It's The oneness isn't just between the believers, right? The oneness is also there between the believers and yeah. Jesus and God and God and Jesus and Jesus and the believers. <laughs> this is like, this is like the transitive property. Yes. I can't believe how many times we've mentioned that in the past like <laughs> few episodes. The fact that it's more than one is just astounding to me. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, if God is connected to Jesus in this way and Jesus is connected to the disciples this way, it seems like Jesus is saying, arguing in this prayer, which feels a little out of place. But Jesus is putting forward the idea that those connections mean that the disciples are connected to God in a unique way that is unique to the way so far that Jesus has been connected to God. Mm-hmm. If we keep going at this rate, people are going to think that I'm good at math. <laughs> but we don't, well, we don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think though, Seth, that that point brings up something really important. That almost woven into this prayer is this idea of what it means to be invited to follow Jesus mm-hmm. and to follow God. That it's not just an ideology or a belief system, but you're quite literally being swept up into something else, something bigger, something broader. It's an invitation into God's own life, God's own work and activity and rest in the world becomes something that we as followers are, like I said, swept up into. Hmm. This does not make us God. Like there's... There's a distinction there still, but it's not a distinction that is primarily hierarchical. It's not a distinction that says, remember, God is God and you're you. It's a distinction that says God is inviting us into something different and bigger than ourselves. And we can talk about it as the divine life, as the kingdom or the reign and realm of God. But it's this concept and idea that is like both all about us getting swept up in it and it's completely not about us it completely consumes but it also completely transcends every individual and every smaller community that's a part of it it's all about that and yet it's not about it mm-hmm. i know i'm speaking really theoretically but there's just this this just really beautiful connection here that is so striking to me that invites the disciples and those who come as a result of their faith, it's an invitation into the abundant life that God doesn't just offer in the world, but God is in the world, that spirit of life mm-hmm. and love and hope. It's all that communally, too. 
Like, I think exactly. I want to hear that, like, my initial impression, because I've been conditioned to think this way, is, like, really individually. Like, oh, that mm. abundant life is there for me, right? But the abundant life is there both for me and for you and for all of our listeners and all the world. And in that way, like, all of us are intertwined with one another. Yeah, Man. and it's it's not just about, like, me getting mine and you getting yours and us having our big houses and fences like that's not what abundant life is it's about being freed from the false senses of self that shackle us down to actually connect with one another and support one another and listen to and love one another in the Mm -hmm. ways that we were intended to so that we together can all have enough so that no one is bound by having too much or too little, but all have enough and all are swept up into the larger work and purpose that God's up to in the world. Yeah, pretty yeah. profound yeah. prayer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this is why people feel pressure when they're asked to pray before the meal. Because <laughs> if this is the standard, gosh, I don't know. Was there anything else that stood out to you from the passage itself? Or do you think you might be ready to talk about what the point or a point of this passage is? I think I'm ready to talk about a point. We've been dancing on the edge. I think so, too. Let's just dive in. I've been preaching a little bit, which is usually (laughs) what I do in the what's the point part. So I might have jumped ahead. But I guess when I think about this perspective that we've talked about of how we are connected to God, how we relate to God as being kind of swept up in or whatever language you want to use to describe this new framework for our relationship. It's really different from the idea that God is kind of both high up and far away, that God is so immensely powerful and sovereign and above us so much greater than us. There's such a greater level of intimacy in this idea that we've been talking about compared to that. So you have these two perspectives clearly in tension with each other. How do you see those perspectives really distinguishing from each other? What are the things that make them most distinct? And what are the implications then for how we try to live out our own faith? What does it matter to us if God is either very intimately connected to us and present with us or is high up and far away. So very distinct and different from us. I'm tempted to talk about the, the implications first and work backwards. Like talk about the practice and then work, work backwards. And I just wonder if, if an intimate God doesn't show us, that our approaches to ministry and relationships and works of healing and justice and equity also need to be done like in ways that are intimate. Like we can't, right. We can't do it at arm's length. Like we can't do it from afar. We always have to do it like in relationship with people right there with them. Yeah. Yeah. It often seems like the communities that emphasize a God who is powerful and dictatorial are, accustomed to or adjacent to like experiences of other authority that that kind of power exercise 
doesn't negatively affect them or doesn't oppress them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas a god who is, I don't know, I would say a god, god who's shown in Genesis 2 to be the kind of creator that gets down in the dirt and crafts things out of the mud and invites humanity to participate in the acts of creation it feels like that level of connection and intimacy might almost be necessary for us to do the other things that god wants us to do in the world yeah i'm also thinking of this in relation to the parable of the sheep and the goats like Mm -hmm. can you you can't visit people in prison give them food and drink like from afar right like this is like a similar idea yeah but i just also think it's also true of people who are like who are suffering and not always that we give we have to give them something or do something but that it's just our presence with them that we also see in a god who is more intimate than one who's separate from humanity and so far above it right yeah when you're in that in that zone of kind of that later description of of how God relates to us. When people are suffering, you're looking for reasons why rather than looking to understand and be present in the midst of the pain, which is what God does in Jesus. Like we've been talking about this, this God who's so intimate and relational and one with us. What... I guess my question is like, why have people found solace in this other picture of God who's, right, who's so totally other? Like, what would make that attractive? Does anything come to mind for you right away? Well, I sometimes wonder if it's not a way to legitimate their own power and authority. Like, if you can envision God as being one who's separate and both powerful and authoritative and then you can claim some of that for yourself like a reflection of it i can see how that some sometimes that all-powerful god can seem to be comforting i guess yeah that's what came to mind immediately too is kind of if you're in power or successful you are interested in a god who is in control of everything because then you feel like morally justified or whatever it is for all that you have. But I can also see a situation where those who are hurting are comforted by the sense that a God is all powerful, that God is bigger than and goes beyond their, their particular situation and offers, offers a hope to let them see out of, even if they're not seeing through the hurt and the pain that there's there's almost an and i don't say this critically but like a, kind of an escapism in, in the midst of some of life's most serious hardships and i almost wonder if just like we were talking about how the way that we're wrapped up in god's life and god's love in the world how it's both all about us and not about us that there's also some of that like both and with both of these perspectives too that God is both intimate and powerful, but maybe that that power and the, that intimacy kind of go beyond some of our scope of understanding. That power doesn't have to be exercised in a 
authoritarian way, but power can be exercised to stand up for those who are hurting, who are on the margins, who are cast aside. Power can be used sacrificially to give it up, to communicate and connect in the ways that Jesus did, a new way of being in the world. Power can be utilized to share God's spirit, for God's spirit Mm -hmm. to dwell throughout all of creation and be accessible to all of us at any time and anywhere. That power can be used to extend grace rather than an iron fist. You know, there's power in all of that. There's authority in all of that, but it is authority that is exercised with great care and great love. And honestly, with great righteousness and justice, as those words connect together to lift up the folks that might not always get lifted up. I don't do a lot of explicitly Lutheran theology on our podcast. I may do it implicitly because it's hard for me to, to stop <laughs> thinking like that i mean you are lutheran so yeah, exactly yeah, I, I wouldn't blame you for that <laughs> exactly but this god who is powerful and can offer comfort is luther's foundation for his own theology of god's justification right mm-hmm. what he what he doesn't want is people to be scared about whether or not they're good enough to do it. So to, so to accomplish that goal, like he puts it all on on God's work and action, right? Which at some level takes an all-powerful God, right? And I also think that that's true of John Calvin. That's how he ends up with double predestination. Is he, is he wants people to be sure of their salvation and what god has done for them so that's my little bit of lutheran theology and that's this has been reformation moments with seth (laughs) (laughs) no but that's such a uh, that's really such a pastoral instinct you know i mean that theology and i particularly think about Calvin's and Calvinism has grown into something I think beyond what was expressed as a pastoral expression of a new way of thinking about God for a particular community and it's grown into this expression of faith that like most expressions of Christian faith has the potential to do a lot of significant harm to But to connect it and root it in that pastoral experience of a theologian in a particular community trying to think about new ways of connecting to God, it's it's really quite powerful. It's it's almost like tender in its care for for Calvin's community. How can we ensure that God's power is not something that we're afraid of, but something that gives us comfort and assurance? Yeah, that's exactly, I think, both of their fundamental questions. Certainly something for us to wrestle with and carry with us. God's power. Let's pray. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, I think that seems seems like something we need to pray for. So, will you pray with me? 
I'd love to. Holy One, just as you experience perfect unity in yourself, our way, our truth, and life, you call us to be united with one another. Help us remember that unity requires love and justice, and sweep us up in your power, the power of your gracious, comforting spirit. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who yearned for all of us to be one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's the story of Pentecost. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>